The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you're all having a wonderful Monday afternoon. Um, Today, our show, we're going to tackle the opioid uh, epidemic that we are all currently facing here in America, and I dare say worldwide. And um, I'm very happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Alkesh Patel, who is boarded in general psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and addiction medicine. Dr. Patel has uh, unlimited experience with and expertise in the addiction uh, profession. Prior, he's currently at Mountainside Treatment Center as their addiction psychiatrist. And prior to going to Mountainside, he completed his addiction training and worked at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York as Associate Director of Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship Training Program. His clinical work has been on developing integrated treatment programs for patients with chronic pain and addiction. At Mountainside, Dr. Patel provides medication management to clients at all levels of care, including clients with uh, dual um, diagnoses. Under his care, clients receive a full continuum of psychiatric services, and we're very happy to have you with us, Dr. Patel. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me on the show to discuss this topic. Um, well, I guess we should start at the beginning. Um, how did we get to this point with um, the overprescription of opioids and the epidemic of opioid addiction? Well, sadly to say, you know, the epidemic definitely didn't happen overnight. There was a culmination, at least I think, um, of a variety of events that escalated over time, probably over the last two decades, probably even earlier, where we have seen a whole array from governmental and federal and legislative actions to a great push to acknowledge the undertreatment of pain to looking at how we practice and prescribe medications as well as looking at, you know, are we really prepared to tackle addiction and pain management and um, how are we doing that in, in the medical education world. So a lot of variety of factors. Maybe we can break them down into points to discuss further. Sure. Um, let's start, I guess, with, um, I guess maybe a good place to start is with the Joint Commission's um, mandate to begin to uh, treat pain, and that was, I believe, in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. The introduction, yeah, that that was with the JACO. From a regulatory perspective. Well, you know, JACO is um, the Joint Commission on Accreditation for Healthcare Organizations, you know, and 
Over time, you know, it was speculated that there was an undertreatment of pain in different settings, specifically when you look at hospitalized patients. Um, you know, and we've all, you know, I mean, as a physician and, and looking at how we assess patients, a lot of things have been very objective when we measure things. You know, we measure vital signs. We measure heart rate, blood pressure, pulse. You know, we measure a lot of things. And one of the things that has come into mind is the you know, assessment of pain, you know, and we know, you know, if we look at different definitions of pain, we know it's basically what a person experiences when it's discomfort, distress, suffering, whatever it may be, but we all know that patients experience pain and that experience is very direct and personal. It's very upfront and we have to remember in any healthcare setting that it's a subjective response and it's a self-report. And, you know, it's a very reliable indicator when it comes from the patient. And I think knowing that, it's literally become the fifth vital sign. And I think one of the liberating laws governing this is that JACO really wants to make forefront that we need to also assess patients for pain, whether it be acute or chronic pain in different settings. You know, um, I, I'm also a registered nurse, and I remember I worked in the operating room when I first got out of nursing school. And, right. you know, the, the folks that got up right after surgery and got moving, they had some pain, but um, it was nothing in compared to people who were more um, encouraged to be in bed and were uh, treated more, um, I guess, gingerly than than. Um, folks that got up and got out right away. And I think, you know, so many people have short hospital stays now that, um, you know, I also wonder about that. Are we using medication because of the short hospital stays and we can't assess people as, as much too, you know? Right. You know, that's a great question. I mean, I think... You know, we know that, you know, using opio opioids are the treatment, medic you know, the medication of choice in hospitalized settings for pain. And, you know, we know that we use them post-operatively, as you know. We use them, you know, in the PACU. We use them in different settings, you know, especially in surgical uh, interventions. And and it's important to understand that pain could be acute or chronic. And a lot of times, you know, opioids may be given because they work very effectively. They're very good for moderate to severe types of pain, you know, um, and they can really help people get up and get ambulating and improve function. You know, um, there is a concept that giving opioids can really help people with improving their function um, in a hospitalized setting. You know, that could initially be working wonderfully, but long term, we don't know you know, what, what the effects will be. Um, we know that in hospitals, you know, if you have a lot of side effects to opioids or people, you know, have cons medical consequences of opioids, that can actually prolong hospital stay and actually have the opposite effect. So what do you think is the root cause of this epidemic? I think the root cause of this epidemic um, comes from several factors. I think that over the last 20 years, we've seen kind of a, a phase where there has been the emphasis that we're really under-treating pain, you know, and that there has been a huge push of pharmaceutical industry to really push 
for the use of opioids, not just for, you know, cancer pain, but also non-cancer pain, what we call chronic non-cancer pain, which is defined as pain that is not from cancer but has lasted six months or more beyond the normal scope of healing and tissue repair, you know. So people who've been on these opioids for a long time, you know, we're questioning why are they on them, how did they get on these medications, and if we look at what's going on, you know, there's been the push with the pharmaceuticals, there's been this kind of encouragement that we're not treating pain effectively, there's been the JACO, um, and then we also have the prescribers playing at heart here, you know, the medical community, and are we over-prescribing opioids, which I think we are, and there's also an inadequate medical education surrounding, you know, targeting and picking out people who are more appropriate for opioids versus kind of screening for people who may not be the best contenders, you know, and that is kind of new development in the field and it's still, you know, process and play here, you know, we're still trying to figure out what the best screening tools would be and so forth. Prior to that, we really didn't have much to work off of, so there was this whole over-prescribing going on, a lack of education, you know, surrounding uh, picking out people that may have bad side effects and people who are not appropriate candidates. Um, in my opinion, I think pain is continuously being undertreated, but I think it's being overtreated specifically with opioids. Well, to a certain extent, I believe pain is normal. I mean, you should have pain in some circumstances, and it's your body telling you that, um, you know, that something, you know, beware, something's going on, whether you've just had surgery or you've got acute appendicitis. So, I mean, are we, I think we're a little one-dimensional when it comes to pain. I mean, some pain is normal. Um, most pain will abate once the inflammation is gone. So are, are we thinking about this in a too um, narrow view of what pain is? I think that's a great question, you know, and there's so many definitions of pain. I know the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as a, quote, unpleasant sensory and emotional experience, you know, which is associated with potential or actual tissue damage. Like you said, you know, when people have tissue injury, they have it from different um, variety of reasons. They're going to experience pain. It is a normal physiological response, but with the physical response also comes the definition that talk about the emotional experience associated with pain. You know, it acknowledges that pain is not only a conscious sensory experience, but may also have, you know, an affective and cognitive response um, tagged to it as well. And this is important because if it's not just a physical response, but it also entails having an effective emotional kind of recognition to it, then do we need to look at the strategies moving forward with addressing pain outside of just relieving the physical discomfort, but are we really looking at the emotional response? Are we looking at kind of the cognitive response? You know, how are we treating this from a multidisciplinary perspective? So, yes, you know, it is a normal physiological response, but after six months of normal healing and you still have chronic pain, what are we really looking at? Are we looking at something else that we're treating other than the physical response? Is it something that we're missing, you know? And, um, yeah. So, so um, when we think about pain and you, you just kind of brought up, how do we determine who would be the... Um, people who would probably receive opiates um, 
most effectively. Has there been any research on that? I mean, what is the current thinking about um, prescribing opiates for folks? That's a great that's a great question. There has been a lot. Well, let's put it this way. Over what led to the opiate epidemic, you know, um, if we look at if there was real research done, it, you know, it's skeptical. We look at over what's done that led to the fueling of the opioids, you know, and we look at what's going on and we find out that, you know, if you really look at those randomized controlled trials, they had few number of people. They had a lot of people dropping out. It's not really concrete medical evidence that suggests that, you know, using opioids for non-cancer pain in patients who've had pain chronically for over six months has really yielded any increased improvement in function overall. You know, short-term pain relief efficacy doesn't necessarily predict long-term results. And we know that because we know that there were a lot of unanswered questions surrounding chronic opioid therapy as to, you know, who's going to be selected for treatment and whether the quality of life and function would improve long-term. You know, so a lot of randomized controlled trials were done, and there's a lot of research that was done recently, and the randomized controlled trials really provided strong evidence that opioids provide the initial relief for chronic pain conditions. But given that these trials weren't really conducted for prolonged periods of time, there was a lack of strong evidence supporting sustainable analgesic efficacy with improved functionality in patients taking opioids more than six months. In English, that basically means short-term pain relief does not necessarily predict long-term efficacy. So what we used to think about is, oh, the patient is feeling much better. Their pain score has decreased. Well, now we look and see, well, if people were on these pain meds for several months to years, you know, in addition to those pain scores, have we seen an improvement in function? And the data that we have now really shows that that's unclear. You know, it's controversial. There really is not that much supportive evidence if you look at the research that really shows that taking opioids for non-cancer pain over six months has led led to really sustained improvements in people's pain scores, as well as an improvement in function, meaning they're working, they're back on their feet, they're able to socialize, they're, you know, they're functioning better in the community. Um, so a lot of the randomized controlled trials um, have been limited in that respect. Um, this is also fascinating. We'll be right back after this commercial break to talk more about the opioid epidemic in America with Dr. Patel. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? 
Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and we're talking with Dr. Alkash Patel regarding the current opioid epidemic in America. And to just kind of summarize our last segment is that um, opioids uh, may be very effective for um, early pain, for short-term pain management. Um, to, a, to a great extent, pain is normal, and we need to find um, other ways to to treat pain besides just a knee-jerk reaction to a prescribing pad. And um, we began to to, um, talk a little bit about how are we screening people and are there good screening tools for um, prescribing um, opiates for people? So, you know, one of the things that's going on now in the whole controversy and looking at um, a lot of the research right now that's being done, there's been a lot of focus and attention on identifying risk factors associated with prescription opioid misuse. What do we mean by opioid misuse? Well, you know, prescription misuse is defined as the use of opioids in a manner other than how it's directed or prescribed. So, you know, abusing the substance or using it to sleep or using it for other indications other than what it's given for, such as pain. And, you know, it's very important to see in, you know, screening patients who are initially coming to your pain clinic or coming to your practice, whether, you know, do they have certain risk factors that put them at risk for abusing opioids in the future? Um, whether they come to you on the opiates or not. And a lot of research has shown that there are certain risk factors, you know, and the most ones that come to mind are if you have a personal history of addiction um, or a family history of addiction, whether you're in recovery or not. Um, Patients who have high levels of pain sensitivity or untreated depression and anxiety or what we call people who have high pain catastrophizing. And what that means is people who have increased rumination or helplessness surrounding their pain complaints. These are people that can be identified through screening tools to have these risk factors, and those people are probably more likely than people without those risk factors to actually misuse their opioids in the future, whether this is a new trial for them or they're coming to you already on a standard dose of an opioid. 
You know, I, I think that, that those are great screening tools. But what about the other side of it? Uh, physicians who don't really understand what they're prescribing. I, you know, um, I can't tell you how many times I've had to advocate for family members when it comes to um, the prescribing practices of different physicians, whether it's sleep medication, benzodiazepines, or, or pain medication. And um, sometimes I think, oh, my gosh, do they even understand what they're doing when they're prescribing this? My daughter went to get her wisdom teeth done a, a few years ago, and she just went to a dentist seeing if, if she liked them. If, you know, she was kind of checking out a couple of them, and she had sure. committed to having surgery with him, and he gave her a prescription for 30 oxycotton without even having um, her sign on the dotted line for to be a patient or whatever. And it was like, I said to her, stay as far away from that man as you possibly can. But sure. what about that side of it? You know, when is there going to be accountability for prescribers who really don't understand what they're prescribing or don't even understand the, the nature of addictive illness um, when they do prescribe in meds? That's a great question. I mean, we know that over time, you know, if I look at when I was a resident or a medical student, how much education did I get? I mean, I'm a subspecialty expert in addiction, but I look at it and I say, you know, that was additional training. But how much training as a medical student or a physician did I actually get in medical school relating to understanding, you know, addiction, understanding pain management, and those type of issues? And I'll tell you, in my experience, you know, it's been very limited, you know, and I bet that right now in the current medication uh, medical model, you know, a lot of um, medical providers are also not getting that integrated kind of education. And, you know, there have been some highlights that have happened over the last three to four years. I know that the FDA introduced, you know, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program for people who are prescribing extended release and long-acting opioids. You know, there are programs that the FDA introduced that would make certain um, companies, drug companies, um, you know, definitely come up with educational materials for providers so that they can actually have programming focused on the prescription drug epidemic and risk factors for misuse, abuse, and addiction, um, and also being able to come up with handouts and other materials that they can actually give to their patients. So there have been a lot of mandated programs um, that are making drug companies um, put out medication, uh, medical education uh, materials for prescribers. However, the, the, the problem here is that, you know, uh, although the Obama administration wants that these things be required, that prescribers be mandated to go through all these programs, the FDA doesn't require that the prescribers actually complete these programs. So again, there's progress, but it's not perfection. You know, there are limited loopholes. I mean, I think we're getting closer to more mandates, but I think that, you know, for now, I think a lot of these programs remain voluntary. So what can a consumer ask or or how can they really understand if the, if the doctor that's prescribing these meds um, really understands the ramifications of the medications, especially if they're in recovery themselves or they're at risk for one of the um, conditions that you mentioned earlier on the screening form? 
Well, I would always tell my patients, you know, I tell anybody, you know, in the community, before walking into the doctor's office, be prepared for your session, you know, treat it literally like a business meeting. You know, there are certain tips that I tell my patients, you know, I always tell them to research their doctor and the, their knowledge about pain management, you know, have they taken courses. There's a lot of information you could find from state medical boards online about someone's credentials, you know. Also, when you come to the doctor's office, if that doctor is someone who experiences in pain management, come prepared with an agenda, you know, know your medication history. Make sure that that doctor or doctor's office has specialists that can refer you for addiction or mental health issues or more complicated pain management issues should they come up, you know. And I always tell patients, be honest about your level of pain, you know, don't exaggerate it and always you know, express concerns that, you know, you have or you have not been on pain, ma pain medications before, you know, and always ask your doctor for alternative strat strategies um, that are non-medication based. Sometimes the physician, you know, in, in medicine, sometimes there's always a pill culture, you know, you don't really feel effective that you're helping patients unless you're writing something on a prescription pad. And sometimes, you know, it's important to talk about, it is always important to talk about alternative therapies that may be equally effective than just opioids. So sometimes we have to empower our patients or future patients to really bring that discussion up to their doctors. What are some of the alternative therapies that are as effective as opioids for treating chronic pain? Well, in practice um, at Mountainside and even prior to Mountainside, I've always referred patients to a variety of alternative treatments that do hold promise and strong evidence-based support for the management of both acute and chronic pain. Um, I have referred many patients for acupuncture. Um, there are different types of acupuncture. There's generalized and there's also auricular acupuncture of the ear that has been helpful for both pain and addiction. Um, there have also been meditation-based therapies and sitting meditation that can really help people center themselves and prevent some of that catastrophizing I talked about, that increased rumination or helplessness and those feelings of discomfort when pain ensues. A lot of patients have to understand and appreciate that pain, you know, for a lot of people, it will be chronic, but it's also how do you live with chronic pain? You know, there has to be some level of acceptance that a, some level of pain will be there. You know, so it's doing some meditation work, doing some acupuncture work, um, doing yoga has really helped with depression and anxiety. A lot of chronic pain patients have untreated depression and anxiety, and sometimes having them practice yoga can really help address some of the the mood instability and that whenever you address depression and anxiety, the chances are that their pain symptoms are not going to be that much more precipitated. You know, patients who have appropriately treated depression and anxiety have a much diminished perception of their pain than people who go untreated. Well, and there are things too like um, water exercises that can be very helpful for people with pain and massage. Yes, and, and absolutely. Um, Steam baths and um, there's there's all kinds of. What about nutrition? Because some some foods tend to be more inflammatory than others. Are there certain nutritional um, interventions that people can use too with chronic pain? 
Absolutely. Um, I think it's important to have a balanced diet. Like I said, pain is an inflammatory response in part. And the foods you eat and the nutrition you have are very important to help stabilize your mood. They're very important to help with the restorative process with respect to healing. You know, if you've had an injury or an insult to your body and that precipitated your pain complaint, it's important to have the right foods and right vitamins and nutritional stuff going on so that you can heal quicker and faster and that probably will help improve your quality of healing from the pain, you know, and having less scarring. You know, foods that are high and rich in vitamin A, vitamin C are very important. Making sure that you're not deficient in vitamin B12, which is really important for your nervous system. It's really important for addressing and preventing any depression, anxiety. You know, having a deficiency in B vitamins has often been shown to cause worsening neurological complaints in patients. You know, people at risk of B12 deficiency or those who don't eat meat, people who are on antacids and people who are on a proton pump inhibitors and people on birth control pills. You know, I see a lot of patients recovering from alcoholism who really kind of burnt out their stomach and they don't have enough acid secretion anymore. You know, those patients are at increased risk of having vitamin deficiencies like B12. So definitely having your doctor appropriately check you for vitamin deficiencies, looking at which vitamin deficiencies you're at risk for, definitely improve your chances of healing and therefore having a less inflammatory response and therefore having a quicker recovery from pain. Has there been any studies uh, to, to determine the correlation between nicotine use and, and pain? Well, just like addiction, you know, the pathways by which neurochemical processes happen with pain development are very shared. You know, we have, if we look at kind of the mediators that may work to convert acute pain into chronic states, we know that several um, neurotransmitters are involved. That includes where nicotine acts, such as acetylcholine receptors. That includes GABA receptors, cannabinoid receptors. So there's definitely a a cross-intersection that happens if we look at the neurochemistry of pain processing, which involves those inflammatory mediators. So, um, you know, we know that with smokers, you know, the patients who smoke have a higher comorbidity of depression and anxiety. And if you have a higher comorbidity of depression and anxiety, that does put you at risk of having a lifetime increased risk of having a chronic pain syndrome. So just by definition, activating nicotinic receptors, smoking, actually puts you in, in, in kind of the circle of having other co-occurring disorders possibly, you know, and when you have depression, you know, if you're a smoker, you have an increased risk of having lifetime risk of depression. And if that's the case, you could compound that by having an increased risk of a pain syndrome later on. And we'll be right back after this commercial to find out more about um, alternatives to pain and um, to discuss more about the opioid epidemic in America. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about opioid um, misuse, abuse, and dependence, and the epidemic that we're facing in America with Dr. Alkash Patel, who is an addiction psychiatrist at Mountainside Treatment Program. And, um, you know, there's just so much to this. There's the political ramifications of it. Um, being here in New Hampshire, we have all the political candidates coming in and out, and um, Hillary Clinton recently said that she just became aware of the opioid crisis in America, going around talking to people here and in Iowa. And, um, you know, you just wonder how disconnected people who are making public policy are from what's happening in, in the daily lives of folks. And, you know, um, I know the opioid trade has been going around since the, the um, you know, the Indochina Wars a long time ago that go back to the 1800s. So there's a there's a political kind of angle to all of this as well. Um, and I know that we certainly can't fix that, but I just think it's important for people to understand that not only are there regulatory issues, there are political issues as well as economic issues to the um, to this crisis that include the 
uh, drug manufacturing companies, but also include our politicians and, and just the world economy as well. Um, I think to get on a more positive note, there are some things that some physicians are doing to help with this uh, crisis. And Dr. Patel, can you share with us what some physicians are doing to help um, decrease the amount of prescription and of opiates that is, that is occurring? Absolutely. There are certain measures that we can do in clinical practice. I know we have to always understand if we look at the big picture, that the majority of opioid prescribers are primary care physicians. They are not pain specialists. They are not subspecialists. They're family practitioners and primary care doctors. So what can we do as a group to really help kind of broaden the what's going on with the epidemic? And, and there are certain things we do in clinical practice. When I worked in a hospitalized setting, you know, in addition to looking at um, providing screening tools for prescription opiate misuse, we also looked at trying to target and identify high-risk populations by, um, you know, looking at the people who showed positive for the screening tools and also making appropriate referrals to psychiatry, to addictionologists, to people who have untreated mental health issues, you know. So perhaps optimizing their chances of doing better on an opioid if they needed it and if it was clinically needed, you know, maybe this person needs to treat their addiction first. Maybe they need to have treatment of their depression with antidepressants first. So the screening test allows you to kind of find out people and their risk level and maybe getting them the intervention and the subspecialty referral prior to considering opiate treatment. You know, that's one strategy we use uh, in a clinic setting and a hospitalized setting um, when we look at people who are at risk. Uh, one of the other things we also did was, you know, have patients give informed consent if they are not high risk for abusing opioids ac according to the screening tools and they're appropriate for it and there's an identified time such as they're going to be on opioids for this amount of weeks and then they're going to be reassessed for the continued use of the opioids. So giving them informed consent, talking to them about the risks, the side effects, long-term of opioids, talking about the risk of addiction, being very transparent in those discussions is another way that providers are really tackling and kind of appropriately screening patients and also educating them about the appropriate risks. The third thing that we use is looking at um, you know, having patients sign what we call opiate treatment agreements. You know, these are agreements that really outline point by point, and they may be 10 points, they may be 20 points, that really talk to the patient about the goals of the using the opioids, the expectations for follow-up, monitoring, refills, what happens if you, you know, lose your prescription, what happens if you miss your appointment, and how to address behaviors that could be suspicious for some other stuff going on. Um, we also use prescription monitoring programs that are available in most states to document where they got their last prescription to make sure that they're not doctor shopping. And we use drug testing. Urine toxicology is a very inexpensive way um, to test people to make sure that they're taking what we're prescribing and not taking something from the outside, you know. Um, and again, toxicology doesn't really, you know, detect addiction, but it more so is used as a part of an overall comprehensive 
treatment plan. You know, it's one tool that can help us kind of detect problematic, early problematic behavior if someone is using cannabis or someone is drinking and they're on oxycodone and so forth. So those are some of the tools that we broadly use uh, in a medical setting to kind of help, uh, you know, cater to who would be more appropriate for opioids and who could do well with opioids short-term versus people who may do better without opioids. Again, we have to look at the tools that are available to us because we know that there's really no general consensus up to date about the exact recommendations on appropriate monitoring and there's no established general consensus on which screening tools to use. So you have to look at the reasonable data and pick out what you think would be appropriate in the setting you work in. So as, a, as an addiction psychiatrist, if um, someone was to come to you with like 15 or 20 years of recovery and they needed a hip replacement or a knee replacement, um, mm-hmm. and they said to you, you know, I'm really scared, I don't, I've heard all this about opiates. What would be your recommendation for pain management for somebody who's in recovery and is going in for surgery? Sure. You know, if the patient has been in very good recovery, the patient needs the surgery, it's medically necessary, and it's a surgery that comes with the risk of really horrible or intractable pain or really severe post-op pain, if we can maximize other non-opioid strategies, that's great. But if the patient really needs intraoperative opioids, they need a certain amount of opioids so that their post-op care really goes uneventful, you know, because if their post-op care, if they don't get opioids to some extent and they have intractable pain post-op, they'll be in the hospital longer and that could actually increase the risk of getting infections and having other hospital delayed outcomes, you know. So it's important to educate the patient about whether opioids are absolutely necessary and what the benefits are. And obviously, the patient wants to be educated about the risk of addiction given the previous history. But we also want to understand that not treating the pain appropriately could actually lead back to the addiction. I've had many patients who had intractable pain and, you know, they didn't want to get on opioids, but they also didn't do other things for their pain management that were recommended. And they had chronic persistent pain and that also impacted their mood. And later on, I found that a lot of them relapsed, you know, either to their drug of choice or they started drinking again. So not treating pain appropriately or having patients not understand the full extent and rolling out the tape forward about what could happen really can also increase the risk of addiction in a very inadvertent way as well. So what other uh, medications um, could somebody use that would be helpful postoperatively for um, acute pain other than an opioid? Well, that's a good question. I think for most post-op pain, you know, opioids are the drug of choice. You know, there is also, you know, the advent of using antidepressants. Anticonvulsants can be used for post-op pain, uh, but the majority of the pain uh, for post-op is usually opioid-based in a hospitalized setting just simply because these medications are very effective for moderate to severe types of pain and also um, that they can be monitored in the setting. If a patient has... We look at other opportunities to, you know, offer other medications, but we also are limited that a lot of other medications don't have an acute onset as much as opioids do. So they're very effective in the right hands. They work wonderful for post-op, but 
And the strategy that I often consider is that if someone has post-op pain, but they also have other comorbidities like depression or they have other things going on, you know, they have neuropathy that hasn't been treated and they have acute with chronic pain, I will consider opioids with another medication such as an anticonvulsant or an antidepressant, which, which can work through different receptor systems. That may have somewhat of a synergistic effect with the opioid if we need to use it for post-op pain. And for how long? I mean, for somebody who's had, you know, post-op pain, for how long would would somebody be treated that has within um, recovery from substance use disorder? That's going to depend on the medical condition that's being treated. Obviously, extending the medication beyond the normal time of repair and tissue, you know, tissue repair uh, and healing is not appropriate. So if someone is expected, if most people who have a hip replacement are usually getting some amount of opioids afterwards, and it's important not to extend beyond that. You know, for someone in recovery, it's important for them to be meeting with their addictionologist and that addictionologist having a collaborative relationship with the primary care doctor and the post-op team to determine what would be the most appropriate course of action. Again, this is going to vary depending on the medical condition, the surgery that was done, the specific medical indication, uh, and also the half-life of the opioid. You know, which opioid is being used. Um, was it the, it's probably not the opioid, hopefully, that they abused, you know, but still being in the opioid class, there is a risk of having reactivation of the addiction. So it's very important for the entire team to work together to closely monitor, but it's also very hard to determine how long and how far out they should continue the opioids because everyone's situation is different. Do people recover from chronic pain? People do recover from chronic pain. Now, what recover means is, is it going to be 100%? Is it going to be 60%? Is it going to be 30%? And then what are they really recovering from? Is it the actual physical pain or is it an overall return of normal functioning, improvement of long-term functioning of their daily activities? Everyone's going to have a different variable level of improvement with chronic pain. Um, we know with opioids, there is a limited evidence that supports the improvement in function and long-term pain relief with chronic opioids, using them over six months. But you can recover from chronic pain if you have more of a multidisciplinary approach. If you are using acupuncture, if you are treating your comorbid depression and anxiety, if you are stopping the smoking of cigarettes, if you are exercising, you know, if you are doing mind-body medicine, if you're using a more broadened approach that we use in our country, we use in different cultures that we've adopted that have really been really helpful for all types of patients from all walks of life, the chances of recovery from chronic pain are much better than just relying on opioid medications alone. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Back. This is Mary, and our guest today is Dr. Alkash Patel, who is an addiction psychiatrist at Mountainside Treatment Center. And um, I think it's really important that everybody, I want to restate what Dr. Patel said earlier, is that when you go to a physician, treat it like a business meeting, do your research, find out what the physician has, um, what training they've received on pain medication, what they know about addiction and addictive disorders. It's really important that you be your own advocate, and you have to be an informed consumer because um, this is this opioid crisis is not anywhere near to being solved yet so the best thing you can do is be a good informed consumer and in saying that I guess what are why are there so few alternatives to opiates when it comes to pain relief you know I think that's an excellent question and it makes you think about well do we really have 
few new alternatives. I think that we have more alternatives now to treat chronic and acute pain than we did 20 years ago. You know, I think the truth is that a lot of the focus has always been on opioids because, you know, as prescribers, sometimes that's sometimes the quick and easy way um, or that's um, the most effective way to treat severe and moderate types of pain. Um, But when we look at the controversies going on and the lack of data, you know, there had been other avenues in which you can treat um, chronic pain. And we do have several alternatives. I think because the opioid has been such a focus that perhaps those discussions don't take place in the doctor's office as much as we think that they do. Um, Are there new treatments coming up for pain other than opiates? Is there anything in the development pipeline? Certainly. Um, there have been there has been a lot of study now on neuromodulation, neurostimulation. I know with the treatment of depression, psychiatry has taken a novel approach and a cutting edge uh, approach, as in with treating certain neurological disorders like Parkinson's tremor and migraines and seizures. You know, there have been um, different procedures such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, deep brain stimulation. There's a lot of neurostimulation clinics that have opened up either in academic sites or large hospitalized settings that will help patients with different disorders such as migraine headaches and different types of pain syndromes. Um, some of the, the indications are non-FDA. Some of them are FDA indications, and that's something to research further. But neuromodulation, looking at holistic Ayurvedic medicine, looking at hypnotherapy, you know, there are different approaches. But the most important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these approaches are integrated. It's not one single approach that dominates. Um, but there are several, several approaches that have had promising um, results in, in newly funded research that really show that a more broadened, a more multidisciplinary approach, a non-traditional approach, you know, may be actually just as effective as someone who relies on pain medications per se. What, what is neurostimulation? What, is, what does somebody experience when they, when they have that procedure done? The neurostimulation? Well, there are different varieties of neurostimulation. You know, for treatment refractory major depressive disorder, there has been a new, um, you know, treatment that's come out that's been uh, out for a few years, transcranial magnetic stimulation. That helps patients treat depression that have failed on multiple medication trials, you know. Um, That treatment has also been looked at and investigated for treating addiction as well as other chronic pain syndromes that are available. Although they haven't really garnered that much FDA-related approval and support, you know, the wave of the future is looking at how else can we treat pain knowing that there are neurotransmitters transmitter receptors, there's um, the central nervous system involved with regulating and churning acute pain into chronic pain. There are different receptor mechanisms result, you know, that are involved and are very complex. So how do we look at targeting those systems? Because pain can happen for many reasons, the release of inflammatory mediators, the release of neurotransmitters. It could be you know, uh, due to many different physiological functions. So looking at the whole picture, looking at how neuromodulation can help with the neurotransmitter system is really important, at least to kind of give some idea of how we can tackle pain on that level. That's fascinating. Um, Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, so I guess there's hope for folks that have chronic pain, that there, um, there are ways to manage your chronic pain and to move beyond it. And, and if you do become addicted to an op- opioid uh, pain medication, there is a way to come off of the op- opioids as well. Uh, and maybe you should talk a little bit about that um, so sure. people understand that there's a process of, of recovery from that as well. Right. You know, if you indeed have opiate addiction, addiction being a loss of control, compulsive drug use, you know, um, and you feel like you are taking more than prescribed, you're taking it in ways that uh, that are not recommended, and you feel like this is turning into an addictive process, well, the next step would be to seek treatment with an addictionologist and kind of discuss that. Because sometimes you know, to come off of opioid pain medication, there is a process of medically supervised detoxification that has to occur, you know, and that's done under the the process of having a medical staff supervise, safely get you off medications, either substituting with Suboxone or Methadone to make you feel comfortable or Clonidine, you know, is another medication to make you feel comfortable to get you off the initial opioids that you were taking in excess and to have a gradual taper of those medications I just mentioned so that you can become opiate-free, you know, and, and get off those medications. And then the next question after that will be, well, now that you're off opioids, how else will you address your chronic pain issue, you know? And again, the key here is to have a multidisciplinary approach, an approach that relies on certain medications, but also one on behaviors and therapy and looking at the whole picture. So after medical detoxification, the story must you know, continue about how to address the chronic pain, but to kind of broaden the scope in which to tackle it after you get off the opioids. So Dr. Patel, how could people contact you if they wanted to learn more about this or if they wanted to learn more about um, the treatment you're providing at Mountainside? They can contact me directly at Mountainside, you know, and I can leave, um, if email is the appropriate way, I can leave that. You can, or you can, what is, is there a website for Mountainside? Yeah, there's certainly a website, mountainside.com. And that you can, um, find, can you contact through that? Yeah. Yeah, you can, I, I believe that the, um, I will have to check, I believe that um, I can, my information is available through the website and also a list of some of the alternative treatments that we also provide here for addressing chronic pain is also available to review on the website as well. And you also provide integrated treatment for addiction and chronic pain as well, right? You can we have sh- both we go sh- there. We sure do. We have an integrated pain and addiction treatment model where we look at mind-body medicine. We look at some of the um, interventions that we do, including acupuncture, yoga, different types of meditation, um, adventure-based therapy, and we look at how we can incorporate those treatments into helping people address their comorbid mental health issues as well as their chronic pain, and addressing both issues simultaneously with these treatments actually helps improve treatment outcomes overall. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I hope this was of help. I'm sure sure it is. It was to me, so thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Have a great day. Have a good week, everyone. 
We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.